0: We had been looking at Ephesians, the New Testament book of Ephesians, all this fall. And uh, it's sort of our custom here at Downtown Prez to switch gears a little bit uh, in Advent. So for the past couple of weeks and for this week and next week, uh, we're taking a break from Ephesians. And we've been looking at this passage in Isaiah chapter 9, where the prophet Isaiah is talking about the coming Messiah And uh, he ascribes to this Messiah four names. And so we've been taking just one of those names every week. And we've arrived at name number three uh, this morning. So we're going to focus our attention there on on that name of the Messiah, Everlasting Father. Um, When I first got to Greenville, I I don't know the day that this uh, first happened, but I know that I heard people talking about this store called Play It Again Sports. And uh, we didn't have Play It Again Sports where I used to live or where I grew up. And so I didn't know what Play It Again Sports was. I just thought it was a sports store, uh, maybe like Dick's Sporting Goods or Sports Authority or something like that. And uh, it wasn't until I walked into the store, Play It Again Sports, that I realized what the name really meant. I thought, like, sports are so great, you just want to keep playing them. Play it again. Sports. It's great. Uh, in reality, if you've never been to Play It Again Sports, it's full of used sporting goods, sporting things. So the idea in the name is, play it again. These sporting goods have already been used, but you can play it again. And some of you are like, is he the stupidest person in the world? <laughs> maybe. Um, I would say, at first blush, this name that we're going to look at, Everlasting Father, uh, just taken in a plain reading, is the one that uh, maybe is hardest. To, uh, understand. We have to do a little bit of digging to get at what it really means for the Messiah, that is Jesus, to be called the everlasting Father. So uh, let's look at uh, this passage, Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7, really focusing in on those words that are bolded in your bulletin. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, O oh Lord, would you open your word to us? Lord, would you show us the Lord Jesus as we look at this? We pray that he'd be put on crystal clear display as the king that he is and that we would entrust all of ourselves to him uh, even this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Now, to hear that one of the names of Jesus is Everlasting Father, sort of immediately to invite a bit of an intellectual problem for many of us. Um, If you've been going to the men's study over the past uh, couple of weeks at the Y, they've been looking at, like Brian mentioned, they've been looking at the Nicene Creed. And uh, there's a lot of ink in the Nicene Creed that's given to the idea that Jesus truly is God. But Also very important that Jesus is God the Son and he is distinct from God the Father. So God the Father is not God the Son and God the Son is not God the Father. Uh, Effectively this past Wednesday morning, Jeff uh, Heiser, one of our pastors who taught that time, uh, spent the whole time making it very clear that God the Father is not God the Son. And so you can see where I'm going with this. If Jesus is called the everlasting Father, that's a description of Jesus who is the Son of God. Uh, so we have to do a little digging to go, okay, if, if Jesus called, is called the everlasting father, but he's not the father, then what in the world does that mean that Jesus is the everlasting father? Uh, this is where we sort of have to imagine that we're Israelites living uh, about 700 years before the birth of Jesus. We, sort, we have to ask ourselves the question, if they were to hear these words, the Messiah, the coming Messiah is the everlasting father, what would they have heard? What would they have understood that to mean? Uh, There are a number of examples of this in the Old Testament, but oftentimes kings were referred to as fathers. So if you're an Israelite living 700 years before the birth of Jesus, if you heard the word father, you would have almost immediately thought, okay, a father is a king. Here's just one example of that. Uh, King David, maybe the, uh, the most famous king in the Old Testament, Uh, certainly in Israel's history, one of the best kings that there were, uh, he was anointed king several years before he actually came to the throne. Uh, And when David got anointed, that is, God says about David, and in front of other people, this man, David, is going to be the king of Israel. Uh, When God did that, it made the current king, whose name is Saul, really mad. And so Saul, who is the current king, starts coming after David to kill him, uh, to take him out. And uh, this sort of epic battle between Saul and David, where Saul is after David. is actually where you get a, a number of psalms uh, where David is saying things like, the Lord sustained me. The Lord is my salvation. Uh, I lay down to sleep and I woke again because the Lord sustained, sustained me. When he talks about uh, evildoers and enemies surrounding him, a lot of times he's in the kind of situation where he's hiding out in a cave from King Saul, who's trying to kill him, who's after him. Now, King Saul is not David's father. They're not related biologically at all. Uh, But at one point in this battle between Saul and David, David gets close enough to Saul to where he could have killed him. But instead of killing him, what he does is he takes the corner of Saul's robe and he cuts it off. And he holds it in front of Saul's face and he says, See, I could have killed you, but I didn't. I just cut off the corner of your robe. Kind of a cool thing to say to somebody who's after you. Uh, But when he says that to Saul, he says, see my father, I cut off the corner of your robe. I could have killed you, but I didn't because you're my king. Uh, He calls Saul, who's not his biological father, father. That's common practice for Israelites to call the king Father, And so if you were an Israelite living 700 years before Jesus and you heard this name, Everlasting Father, immediately what would have come to your mind is a king. That's who the Messiah will be, an everlasting king. Now, this morning, we have to do a little bit of wrestling with the idea that Jesus is king. Uh, and the reason for that is that there is within us this sort of subtle anti-authoritarian bent. We just don't love the idea of somebody being in authority over us. Uh, Even to be told what to do in small ways can be very difficult. And I'm not just speaking to the teenagers in the room uh, who hear mom and dad tell them to do something. You just get that feeling within you, like I really wish they wouldn't tell me what to do. Uh, If we're honest, that lives in all of us. Throughout our whole lives, there's something in us that says, okay, I just don't want someone to tell me what to do. I don't want someone to rule over me. Uh, and this can play out very subtly. There was a study done recently of uh, 51 college students, and they were playing a trading game where they were going to use fake money to make fake stock trades, and they were put on teams. And and, uh, they played several rounds of this game where these teams have to share a pot of money and make stock trades. Now, they gave all the money to one player on each team. In the different rounds, it would be a different person, but it was always called player one. The person that got all the money was player one. So imagine you're on this team, player one gets uh, all this money, and the rest of the team has to ask player one for money so that they can make their own stock trade, so that they can participate in the game. Now, in the first round, the rules were, uh, if you were gonna ask player one for some money, you weren't allowed to say a specific amount of money. You just had to ask for some money from player one. So they played round one, they made their stock trades. Round one ends and they go to round two and here the rules change. Here's the only change they made. Player one gets all the money again. But if you want any money from player one, you have to ask for a specific amount of money. Here's what happened. In round two, when it had to be a specific amount of money that was asked for, all the giving went down. Player one became less generous in like 80% of the teams. And you may say, okay, well, that's just, you know, some part of human psychology that when you get asked for a specific amount, you're more likely uh, to give that amount as opposed to maybe being more generous if you weren't asked for a specific amount. We just can't be that nice to these players, unfortunately. Uh, In a survey after the game where they're reflecting on sort of, you know, how it went, how the game played out, and those 80% of participants Uh, who acted as player one and had to either give or not give money to other people. Here's how they reflected on when they were asked for a specific amount of money. Here's what they said. When player one requests a specific amount of money, he distrusts me and I dislike that. All it took was asking for a specific amount of money and something in these players said, you can't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how much money to give. Don't tell me how much fake money to give in this fake game that we're playing. When we have that little bent within us, we don't want someone to be in authority over us. What we're really feeling, what we're really saying is, I don't want someone else to be king because I want to be king. I want to rule. I want to reign. Now again, if we're honest, when we do get power, when we do get control of ourselves, it doesn't usually go that well. Um, even you kids in the room, you you may feel sometimes like, you know, I would just love it if mom and dad would go on like a two-week vacation and leave me home alone. No parents, no rules, pizza for breakfast. Uh, That may sound fun. Uh, But if you talk to a child who maybe grew up without parents uh, who cared where they were or what they do, you may hear a different story I remember uh, talking to a fellow high schooler when I was in high school, um, and he was uh, talking about sort of his day in and day out life. And we were doing that thing that teenagers do when they're together where we just started complaining about our parents, uh, very respectfully, of course, but we were, we were talking about sort of the way our parents treat us, the rules that we have uh, in our house. And of course, it was like we were, we were describing like a militant regime over us, you know, who's who in control of our lives. Um, and this uh, other friend who was there, uh, whose, whose uh, parents just didn't have rules for him, he said, man, I wish my parents cared about me as much as yours do you. You talk about convicting for a group of kids who are just complaining about their parents. Uh, what's really coming out of him in that moment is, you know, It may sound like a lot of fun to have nobody telling you what to do, to have no rules, to have no one who's in control over you. But what I long for is someone to care about me enough to tell me what to do, to care about me enough to protect my future, to guide me into it. What I really want deep down is a king, someone who's in control of me, someone who I can trust. Um, Even as I say that, if we think about giving control of our lives to someone else, letting someone else have the reins of our life, Uh, I think what we're scared of is that, sure, maybe we want a king. We're just afraid that they're not going to be good. A king's not going to actually have our best interest in mind. If we let someone else have control, we're afraid of the outcome of their reign. Because if they're in control, that means I'm not in control. And I want my future to be good. I want everything to turn out okay. Uh, And it is difficult to hand over control of your life to someone else. Um, If you watched The Crown on Netflix, this is the sort of dramatic adaptation of the reign of Queen Elizabeth II, who's still reigning, mind you, in in England. But this goes back to even the 50s when she uh, initially took the throne. Uh, There's a scene early on in that show where Queen Elizabeth has just become the queen. And mind you, she's married to Prince Philip. She's already got uh, one child. And they're doing... Uh, a commonwealth tour where basically they go from uh, nation to nation where people use money that has the queen on it. And they're, you know, they're doing their royal thing where they wave and and say hello and give speeches and and things of that nature. And they're on this big journey. And on the way back to Britain, they're supposed to stop in Gibraltar. Uh, Gibraltar is the southern tip of Spain. I obviously knew that before I was preparing for this sermon, but just if anyone didn't, (laughs) I'm going to let you know that. Uh, So they're supposed to stop in Gibraltar and uh, Prince Philip, this is the queen's husband, doesn't want to go to Gibraltar. He's telling his wife, the queen, it's not a good idea, we shouldn't go to Gibraltar. And everybody else on the trip starts to chime in and say, he's right, it's not a good idea, we shouldn't go to Gibraltar. And so she's contemplating, they're talking back and forth about whether or not they're gonna to go to Gibraltar. And Prince Philip really puts his foot down in the show. And he's like, we cannot go to Gibraltar. It's not safe, we can't do it, we must not do it. Here's what Queen Elizabeth says. For better or worse, the crown has fallen on my head, and I say we go. So they went to Gibraltar. Uh, Sometimes, following a king king means he's going to contradict your desires. He's going to make you do something that you wouldn't naturally do. So... uh, We have to wrestle with that. And we can feel like, you know, what I'd really like uh, is maybe a king who I can control. Maybe a king who promises that he'll never contradict my desires. Um, Or I'll just kind of distrust all authority in my life, whether it's my parents or my teachers or anyone who tries to tell me what to do. I'm just gonna distrust all authority. I just won't trust anyone. I won't obey anyone. No one will be able to tell me what to do. And of course, that's not the solution to that problem. The solution to that little voice inside us that says, Don't let someone tell you what to do, uh, is not to make ourselves king, but it's to entrust ourselves to a good king, a benevolent king, a king who we can truly trust, a king who, even if they did tell us to do something that felt contrary to our desires, contrary to our plans for our life, we could say, You know better than I do, and I trust you. I'm gonna go wherever you lead me. Uh, the good news for us is that Jesus is that good king. Jesus is the king you can trust, who really is good. You know, when Isaiah was, uh, was writing these words, when he's saying these words to Israel, uh, he could have used the word king. He could have said, the Messiah will be an everlasting king, but he doesn't do that. He says, he'll be an everlasting father. And the reason is because, uh, the word father doesn't just convey authority. The word father also conveys character. And Isaiah wants his people to hear, hey, the king who is coming, uh, he's not gonna be like the kings that you've had. He's gonna be like a father to you. The kings that the people of Israel have had up to this point when Isaiah says this have been terrible. I mean terrible. So before Isaiah's time, before Israel had a king, they asked God for a king. We want to be like other nations, so please give us a king. And so God says, okay, I'll give you a king. He actually makes a promise and says, there's always going to be a king in Israel. There'll always be a king. Uh, It's not going well when Isaiah says this. In fact, the king at this time is a man named Ahaz. And in about two sentences in the book of Kings, here's what we learn about Ahaz. First, he goes into the temple of the Lord where people are to make sacrifices to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And he takes uh, the place where they're to make sacrifices to Yahweh and he moves it over to the side, almost symbolically to say, we're no longer gonna make these sacrifices to Yahweh. Uh, he, brings in, uh, he, he brings in a place where they can sacrifice to a foreign God. Uh, he puts an altar to a foreign God in the temple Of Israel, And then he sacrifices his own son on it. This is not a father of a king. Ahaz is a monster of a king. And it's to those people living under his rule that Isaiah says, there's a king coming who's gonna be like a father to you. Like a father to you. I mean, that had to sound to them like coming up for air. Like, please give me that king. Please. Um... When Jesus was born, there's this sneaking suspicion around Jesus, really his whole life, that people in authority are, are just a little nervous about Jesus. Um, and it starts from the moment that he's born. Right when Jesus is born, King Herod, uh, he asks the chief priest, he's heard that there's this Messiah who's been born, and he asks the chief priests. he says, okay, uh, I hear that there's this king who's been born, this king of the Jews who's been born, this Messiah. Where is he? Where is he going to be born? And what the chief priests say, they respond by taking two Old Testament prophecies and sort of joining them together. And here's what they say to King Herod. They say, and you, O Bethlehem, that's the answer to his question. Here's where Jesus will be. And you, O Bethlehem, from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Not just a ruler who will reign, a ruler who will shepherd, someone who will care about you, who will care for you, who will guide you like a shepherd. So does Jesus shepherd? Does he become this kind of ruler who shepherds his people? I'd like you to imagine, maybe it'll be fun for some of you to uh, imagine that Greenville were a kingdom. And it's got like a big wall around it. And maybe a, uh, the Reedy River becomes a moat. Kind of already could be a moat. You know, it's ill-advised probably to swim in the Reedy. Uh, you may grow extra eyes or something. But um, So Greenville is a kingdom and you get to be the king or queen of Greenville for one year, one year. And I don't mean like you're on city council and you've got some sway. I mean like you're the king or the queen, everything, the buck stops with you. Uh, One of the first things that you would need to do if you're the king or the queen is you would need to establish your rules in the kingdom. You would need to let people know, here's what you must and must not do within the kingdom called Greenville. Uh, And as you wrote those rules, as you made them known to people, what would really be coming out of you is your ideal for the kingdom of Greenville. Uh, Those rules would represent maybe the things that bother you about Greenville today, but really that if you were king, and people even talk like this, you know, if I were king of the world, then they say the way they they want the world to be. You'd get to do that in Greenville. You get to say, here's my ideal for Greenville. Now, if we apply that question to Jesus, and say, okay, Jesus, if you are the everlasting father, you're the king, what are your rules? What's your ideal for the world? Uh, Jesus was asked this question, what's the greatest commandment? And here's how he answered the question. He said, the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they didn't ask him for the second greatest commandment, but he gives it anyway. He says, the second greatest commandment is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So if the question is, what is Jesus' ideal for the world? What would Jesus love to see in the world? What he would love to see is everyone loving God, and that is a responding love, a love toward God that responds to the love that God has for people. He'd love to see that, and he'd love to see everyone loving their neighbor like they love themselves. If everyone did that, If everyone on the planet loved God and loved their neighbor as themselves, we would live in a dream world. You wouldn't have to lock your doors at night. It'd be an amazing place to live. And that's what King Jesus wants. Those are his two main rules. That's what he wants, people to love God and to love one another. Um, There's a book by a historian named Tom Holland not the Spider-Man actor, very different guy. Uh, Tom Holland, a historian, uh, and he he wrote a book called Dominion, and it covers the history of the effect of Christianity really on the whole world. Uh, And he starts in about 800 BC, and what he's doing is trying to explain where the practice of crucifixion came from. Uh, And so as he's describing the history of crucifixion, he starts by saying, uh, all these kings who lived in the Near East, these uh, competing kingdoms, one of the things that they had to do was they had to punish their enemies. If there was someone who came into their kingdom uh, and was trying to hurt their people, trying to disrupt the peace of their kingdom, they had to punish their enemies. And so what kings would do is they would try to come up with creative ways to put their enemies to shame, to show the world, hey, if, if you're an enemy of me as the king, here's what will happen to you. Uh, and Tom Holland, the historian, he says, you know, for us, it can be really gruesome to read these descriptions of what kings would do to their enemies. He said, but if you were a subject in one of their kingdoms, you would have loved it. You would love to see your king saying, hey, uh, I love you so much. I care about you so much. Here's what I'll do to someone who tries to hurt you. Here's what I'll do to someone who's against you. But of course, Jesus does not treat his enemies that way. That's not how he treats his enemies. Um, if we ask the question, when does Jesus most look like a king? When does he most resemble a king? He most looks like a king at the very end of his life. But everything that's kingly about that situation at the very end of his life looks like a sham. It looks like he's a fake king. So for instance, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, uh, this is very, a very kingly thing to do, to ride into uh, a town and sort of celebrate your victory. But instead of riding on a war horse, Jesus is riding on a donkey. Uh, Instead of being clothed in a royal robe, Jesus is stripped naked. Uh, Instead of a sword or a scepter, Jesus has a reed. Instead of a crown of gold and jewels, he's got a crown of thorns. Instead of being surrounded by servants who do his bidding, he's surrounded by enemies who spit on him. And instead of being seated on a throne, he's hanging on a cross. And if we look at that picture, what becomes clear is that Jesus, as king, didn't come to kill his enemies. He came to die for them. And that's his character. He's the everlasting father. This is what he's like. And of course, he is... This way, in an everlasting sense, and that means at least two things. First, Jesus has always been this kind of fatherly king. He's always been this way. He didn't become this. He's always been this way. Uh, if you read the history of the British monarchy, one of the things that they're very careful about in writing the history of the British monarchy is uh, when someone is born, they will say, so-and-so became at his birth the Prince of Wales. They don't say he's always been the Prince of Wales. They're very careful to say at his birth, he became such and such, or at their wedding, she became such and such. Not so for Jesus. He's always been the everlasting father. He's always been this way, and he'll always be that way. He'll always be the everlasting father. Um, There's a biblical counselor named Ed Welch who defines anxiety as Uh, a prediction of a bad outcome, anticipation of a bad outcome. Uh, If Jesus is the everlasting father, if he will be king forever, then the one way that you and I can guarantee no bad outcomes for us is to trust him, to follow him into the everlasting realm that he is king of, and in, in everlasting, in forever, where Jesus is king, if we belong to him, there are no bad outcomes. There is nothing to worry about under the reign of Jesus. Nothing. Um, you know, whenever there's a phrase in the Bible, especially uh, in the original languages that it just doesn't neatly translate into English or just doesn't quite carry the meaning that, uh, that translators think it's supposed to have, there's always a lot of ink spilled about a better way to translate it, a different way to translate it. So this phrase in particular, everlasting father, is one that a lot of commentators and a lot of translators have taken stabs at. Here's the way one commentator put it. Jesus, as the everlasting father, is the benevolent king of the uncertain future. The benevolent king of the uncertain future. Now, if Jesus really is the king, like he says he is, and if he really is the everlasting king, like he says he is, then what that means is that we have to respond to him. And we have to respond to him as a king. Uh, kings don't come to people and say, you know, uh, you can sort of be indifferent toward me if you'd like to be. Uh, no, kings come to people and they say, you're either with me or you're not. Uh, And the heart of Jesus Christ toward every single one of us in this room is I'd like to be your everlasting father. I'd like to be your king. I'd like for you to entrust everything that you are, everything that you have, everything that you worry about to me. So that's what we have to do with Jesus, with the everlasting father. What we have to do is respond to him by saying, I'll give everything to you, I'll trust you entirely. Uh, and maybe you're wondering, okay, well, what does that look like? How do I do that? How do I trust myself to Jesus? Uh, Here's one more picture. It's fun to get to talk about, you know, British royal history a lot. We're going even further back with this one. In the 13th century, excuse me, 14th century, because I know that makes a big difference. Uh, In the 14th century, Uh, Scotland and England are at odds with one another. And the question, much like it is today, is is Scotland going to be part of England? Are they going to be two distinct kingdoms at the time? Uh, There's a man named Robert the Bruce. He makes an appearance in Braveheart. From what I understand, that's not totally historically accurate, but he's in he's in Braveheart. Uh, And Robert the Bruce decides that he is going to make himself the king of Scotland. He's going to take the throne of Scotland and he's going to take back Scotland from England. Uh, there's a movie on Netflix about this called The Outlaw King. Really gruesome movie. I don't recommend it. It took me like weeks to get over having to watch that movie. But anyway, uh, <laughs> when, when Robert the Bruce is making this decision, he's making the decision that I'm going to make myself king of Scotland, um, he's talking to his wife. And they're both under the understanding that if he decides to go forward, with becoming the king of Scotland, with trying to take back Scotland, everything he has is gonna be at risk, Uh, especially his loved ones, his wife and his children. Uh, The life that they've enjoyed is totally precarious if he decides to be king. Uh, in, In talking to his wife, it's almost like he's asking her for advice and you're ready for her to give him some advice about what to do or not to do. And here's what she says. I know you have no need for my counsel. I've seen very little of the world. However, a young lady of my standing is afforded a great deal of time to read, to form distinct opinions, and to draw her own conclusions about the nature of power. Now, here's what you expect her to say, all right, and here, this should be your battle plan. Let me tell you what to do. It's not what she does. She says, power is making decisions. Power is not allowing yourself to be buffeted on the tides of history. Instead, it's choosing a boat. Climbing aboard and hoisting the sail. Now, here's where you realize she's not telling him what to do. She's telling him what she's about to do. Here's what she says I choose you. And whatever course you chart, I choose you, my husband. What she's saying to her husband is I'll follow you wherever you go. Whatever the future holds, I trust you. If Jesus is the everlasting Father, if he's that good of a king. And what that means is we can entrust ourselves to him entirely. And the question for all of us, whether you follow Jesus for years or you've never trusted him, the question is, is he your king this morning? Is he your king today? Have you given yourself to the everlasting father? And if you haven't, would you do it today? Would you trust him today? He's the one king you can really trust and you really can trust him. That's good news for us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that you've loved us so richly in Jesus that your son is our king. He's the one who reigns, who we can trust. Lord, would you give us hearts that do trust him? God, take away all our fear of giving ourselves to the Lord Jesus and make us people who give ourselves to him totally, but especially in the places that we're most afraid to give ourselves to the Lord Jesus. Would you work that in us even now? We pray in Christ's name, amen.